0: Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of the Red Ball Express, an incredible and hastily designed World War II trucking effort that kept the armies of General Patton and General Omar Bradley supplied as they roared across France and pushed the Germans back to their home territory. This is the story of regular people doing extraordinary things, how the truck drivers of the Red Ball Express helped to defeat Adolf Hitler. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a GearVendors overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com and remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even Well racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more.
1: Before the great ports of France and Belgium were opened up, before the railroads were serviceable, the problem of supply was perhaps the greatest problem Allied commanders had to face. The only available means of bringing food to the liberated areas, equipment and supplies to the battle zones, was by highway. By a highway which came to be called the Red Ball Highway an endless stream of trucks and trailers rolling to the fronts on one-way roads. Along the narrow French roads, in fair weather and in foul, over the battered bridges, through the smashed villages, 24 hours a day, the Red Ball moved. It was the Red Ball who, in the fighting in Brittany, had to break its way past enemy patrols to get gasoline up to the forward troops. It was the Red Ball who brought the first food into Paris, when the city had been liberated. It was the Red Ball who, on a maze of unfamiliar roads, supplied the Allied armies stretched from Antwerp to the Vosges, supplied six armies, and kept supplying them for three long months.
0: And so, thus we begin telling the tale of the incredible Red Ball Express of World War II. A neat overview there, and and you're going to hear some historic clips throughout the course of this show. I went back and was able to find a lot of newsreel footage and uh, kind of other uh, really War Department propaganda films that talks a lot about that talked a lot about the Red Ball Express and what was accomplished. And on the face of it, it doesn't seem like that compelling a story. It's a bunch of trucks that delivered supplies to help the uh, the armies, the First and Third United States Armies that were beating the uh, beating the brains out of the Germans back towards Germany, but it really is an amazing story for so many different elements. There's the human element, the mechanical element, and the overriding legacy of the Red Ball Express, uh, a legacy that the United States of America continues to exhibit and utilize every single day. Uh, many of us in our regular lives, uh, if not every day, multiple times a week, and we'll Get into that as the show goes on. So, when we talk about the Red Ball Express, we are talking about, as I just mentioned, a trucking system, a system that was designed to fill a need, to fill a void, and to keep armies at the front of the European theater, which would have been France in 1944, supplied. We need to step back a minute to go back to June of 1944 and understand that was when D-Day happened. The United States and the Allies invaded France. They established this little tiny beachhead there in Normandy and Omaha Beach and some other areas. But they're basically trapped and pinned down there for a while. The German army fought incredibly Uh, as you'd imagine, hard to prevent that invasion from happening in the first place. And then when it did happen, they really tried to keep all the Allied troops um, and various armies trapped on the shoreline or as close to the shoreline as they possibly could uh, to their own advantage. They did not want to cede any ground. This worked for a little while. Uh, There was very little forward progress made for a couple of weeks after the beachhead was established. But then we see some planning. We see Eisenhower and the Allies come up with what they would dub Operation Cobra, and Operation Cobra is ultimately what's going to allow them to kind of bust free from the beaches. Now, as they have been trapped on these beaches, um, they have been stockpiling materials at an incredible rate. Thousands of trucks a day, thousands and tens of thousands of gallons of gasoline a day, and we'll talk about some of the consumption that is mind-boggling when we get into these campaigns and, and what this Red Ball Express was able to do to keep these people and armies moving forward. It is July of 1944, the Battle of St. Lo happens, or if you're a proper French speaker, St. Lo, and it is during that battle that the Allies win, and they establish this little kind of opening in the German line. They take that little opening and use it as a breakout point, and once they're able to break out of this entrapment they have been on very close to the shore, things change very rapidly, meaning that all of a sudden, they're making big strides, and the, and the Germans are retreating, and they're retreating very fast, and they're not providing a lot of resistance. And there was some question as to why they would do that, and we'll get into some of that a little bit later on in the show. But understand, as we get into late July, we get into very early August, the uh, Allied forces have absolutely busted out of their their kind of trapped area near the shoreline of Normandy, and they are, uh, they're bringing the heat right now. They are driving the Germans backwards. And the further they go away from the beach, the more tenuous their situation begins to become because of the fact that before the D-Day invasion, the Allies had completely and utterly destroyed the entire railway system in France. They had destroyed many bridges. They had mangled many roads. They had all but annihilated any sort of mass transit that was available, even in its most rudimentary sense, in 1944 France reason for that was simple. They did not want the Germans to be able to bring reinforcements to the beachhead. When they started the invasion, the last thing in the world they wanted was to have truckloads and trainloads of German soldiers coming to reinforce the guys they were trying to t- knock off the beach. So by the this incredibly aggressive bombing campaign ahead of time, they... Uh, stopped the Germans' ability to bring people to the front. But in the same time, it became a big hindrance when they actually needed to advance because they would have loved to have those trains, they would have loved to have had those train tracks to move ammunition, to move fuel, to move supplies, and to move the very basic necessities that an army needs to continue moving on. One of the fascinating things and the points I think we're going to keep coming back to when we talk about the Red Ball Express is the fact that You know, when we look at wars and how wars are won or lost, so many times we get hung up on the generals and the big single battles and the, you know, crucial one or other decision making that sends things one way or the other on the battlefield. But the way wars are really won and lost is a lot less exciting than that. They are won and lost on calories. They are won and lost on planning, of course, and logistics. And in the course of World War II, they were won and lost on oil and on gasoline, specifically the most commonly used fuel in any sort of mechanized vehicle. So, you know, the old adage of an army marches on its stomach is absolutely 100% true. And, And we see throughout history, armies that have been run down or run ragged, people that are tired and weak, they get overrun, even sometimes by an inferior enemy. And this idea that... You know, when it comes right down to it, there's logistical planning offices where people are doing the math to understand, you know, the minimum number of calories a soldier needs over the course of the day. I mean, it goes all the way down to that level of planning. And so the Red Ball Express is not only filling the gas tanks of vehicles, which they will do at an astonishing rate, but they're also filling, obviously, the stomachs of the soldiers with rations uh, and and even, you know, even the other stuff that people just for morale wise need. They hauled tons of tobacco products and candy and all kinds of stuff, just basic human things that kept Patton's soldiers and Omar Bradley's soldiers in a in a high fighting spirit. So after the success of Operation Cobra and the breakout uh, at the the Battle of saint Lo all the the planning effort that had gone into the D-Day invasion and what would then happen after it really goes out the window because there was this idea that it was going to be kind of a very measured kind of slow slog across the country of France and it turned into a sprint. So the things that were planned in terms of, okay, on this date we'll get this far, on this date we'll get here, on this date we'll capture a port, on this date we'll do this, really went out the window. And... As we all know, when anybody plans anything, whether it's a a military operation or a birthday party, you want to stick with the plan. And all of a sudden, there really was no plan. And uh, this goes especially doubly true for George Patton, who was absolutely just hammered down, running as fast and as hard and as fast as he could to the east, and he was pushing the Germans back faster than anybody could have ever imagined. There is a school of thought which I'm not sure I agree with 100%, but there is a school of thought that the Germans believed that if they pulled back very quickly, the Americans would overextend their lines and almost seal, almost allow themselves to be um, entrapped by running, outrunning their supplies, by outrunning their gasoline, by outrunning their food. The Germans pulled back fast to try to lure the Americans into this trap. They made one very giant critical mistake. If you follow this line of thinking, and that was a lack of understanding in how mechanized and how, even if it was ugly at times, how incredibly uh, organized and just absolutely hard scrabble that the United States Armed Forces forces were. They also completely underestimated the ability of the United States to supply things like trucks and mechanized equipment to actually support this effort, which. No other army on the face of the earth at this time in history could have done this. Very important point to make. There is not a single country on earth, including Russia, who was getting a lot of their trucks and equipment on Lend-Lease from the United States, could produce vehicles and could could muster people and could get things like fuel and other supplies moved to the front like the Red Ball Express did. Not another single one. Of course, The Red Ball Express taught everybody some great lessons on how it needed to be done and what would happen and how it could be properly executed. But at the time, there was not a a military on earth that could have even considered doing something like this. So we've broken out of Saint-Lô now. We've got Operation Cobra in full swing. On August 7th, 1944, we look back at the records, the military records. We see that General Patton used 380,000 gallons of gas a day. 380,000 gallons of gasoline were being consumed by George Patton's 3rd Army. Obviously, a highly mechanized force, he's he's a tank commander, you know, he's a tank general. So, nearly 400,000 gallons of fuel being burned. On August 24th, the 1st Army, which was Omar Bradley, used 782,000 gallons by itself And when we start looking at the combined totals, we're seeing that both the 1st and 3rd armies were using close to a million gallons of gasoline a day. And they were using it to drive further and further away from where it was stored. And this became a very critical concern and problem for the Allied High Command. So as the rate of consumption increases for both of these armies... The distance to supply them increases as well, and historically this is the devastatingly bad math. In the 1700s, you would be talking about an army that was not mechanized, but you'd be talking about an army that needed food. And what was happening here, if we, can, if we equate it back to something in the 1700s, this hungry army was marching further and further away from the food. And that was the the type of stuff that got you in big trouble because then you'd have a weakened or stalled force, you'd give the enemy time to reform and and potentially encircle you, and there was all kinds of uh, all kinds of very scary potential problems here. Despite the fact they were making better time than they thought, pushing the Germans back through France, it was all uh, it was all very concerning to the high command. Ernie Pyle, who is one of the great war reporters of all time, wrote a story in September of 1944. This is about a week after the Red Bull Express had started, and he called the problem a tactician's hell and a quartermaster's nightmare. And that's exactly what it was. The 1st and 3rd Armies had covered 300 miles in about a month. They weren't even originally planned to do half of that in a month. Not even half. So they're double plus where anybody expected they would have been. And Patton had tried to develop his own type of supply lines um, almost independently of the rest of the Army. Uh, George Patton was not known as a guy who followed a lot of rules or wanted to wait around for anybody or anything. He was a maverick, and so he set up up this kind of very basic, and it was pretty willy-nilly, supply chain to keep him fueled, and it wasn't, wasn't working as well as he would have liked. So we have the problem of having plenty of stuff. The beaches of Normandy absolutely full to the gills of... Supplies Of food, of fuel, of ammunition, of clothing, of tobacco, of candy, of you name it. They had it all. We needed to get it from there to the armies, which were day by day uh, advancing further and further away from it. So we look at the problems now. We've talked about the fact that it's mangled railroads. There's no real way to move stuff. And the advancing of the army being so incredibly fast, there was no real plan. And... They had to make one very quickly so trucks were discovered trucks were the only possible solution to this problem so when we talk about trucks uh at the time we're going to get into the specific models used but let's just say in general uh when when two guys one named lieutenant colonel lauren ayers and another named major gordon gravel sat around a table and worked for 36 hours straight the only possible solution they came up with was a trucking route And so they were left with very few options. It isn't like this was some stroke of genius. When they looked around, it was not like, okay, well, we can do this or that. There was no way to airlift this stuff as quickly as possible as it needed to be in volume. There was no way to use the railroads, So they were left with the use of trucks. So their main concentration became, how do we maximize the usage of these trucks? What do we need to do to make this a successful operation? And their solution was very simple create what is basically a giant closed loop of one-way roads that were open only to trucks and only to those on the Red Ball Express. But why is it even called the Red Ball Express? Let's hear why.
2: What's that? What's the Red Ball Express? What's the matter, Mac? Where were you? Oh, that's right. You were back home. Back home. Well, back home, a red ball painted on a freight car means priority. Clear the tracks. We're coming through. And in France, from the beaches of Normandy clear across to the front lines past Paris, a red disc above the bumper meant we were coming through.
0: So it was a simple and brilliant and easily understood solution to the guys that would be involved in this process. The Red Ball Express, the Red Ball name, as you just heard that soldier describe or that voiceover actor describe from a 1947 film called Rolling to the Rhine, which was a dramatized, uh, propagandized look at the Red Ball Express. You'll be hearing more from him throughout the course of this show, as well as a couple of other voices it was something everybody knew at that time we don't know it anymore because well it doesn't exist that way but if you can imagine a, a train or train cars with a giant red ball painted on them as most everything in the united states was moving in mass on railroads at the time uh, people understood what that meant clear the tracks get out of the way this stuff is high importance and it's uh, it's going to go ahead of everything else just like these red ball express trucks were going to do so the sky the size and scope of the red ball express as well as the people involved really, really turn into a point of interest, at least for me. It is August 25th, 1944, that the Red Ball Express is officially put into practice. When it starts out, there are about 4,000 trucks involved. At its peak, there will be 6,000 trucks, 25,000 people working effectively 24 hours a day. And we'll talk about the problems that arise with that over the course of time. So there are 3,000 trucks a day coming ashore, as I mentioned, off of various ships. These are all the equipment that the United States is sending over for the protracted battles that will happen in France and Germany to end the war. And so when the planners, Ayers and Gravel, looked at their their options here, they started forming uh, different kind of companies they also went around and said hey listen we we need everything we can get so any truck that was really available on the english continent or the the european continent and trucks even that were uh shipped in from other parts of the world they they basically scarfed everything they could up the initial goal was that they would move eighty two thousand tons of supplies between august 25th and september 2nd which uh is one week Right? That is a one week span. They wanted to move 82,000 tons of stuff in a week. This is an operation that requires. Incredible effort from everybody from engineers who needed to maintain the roads. Of course, the drivers, we'll talk about how hellacious this was for them. The military police, which were involved to make sure that only Red Ball Express vehicles were on these particular highways and that uh, no French traffic was on them, and they were there at critical intersections to try to keep these guys uh, on course. Another problem that we'll talk about. There were specialists and quartermasters and material handlers, petroleum specialists all these people working in absolute unison. And yes, there was chaos, and yes, there were failures, and yes, there were problems. We will address those problems a little bit later on. There is no, in any war scenario, there is no perfect solution for anything. There is only kind of the best you can do given the circumstances at any given time. The Red Ball Express was the best they could do given the circumstances of the time. It was not the magic bullet, It was not an easy solution, and we'll talk about just how difficult it was as we move along. But let's talk about kind of the size and scope of this thing. We talked about 25,000 people, 6,000 trucks, umpteen trailers, Jeeps, Um, and the initial plan, again, on paper, everything's great, the initial plan was that you were going to have these 5 to 10 vehicle convoys. They would be spread out 50 to 60 yards of vehicle. There'd be a Jeep in the front, a Jeep in the back, and they would travel at like 20 some miles an hour. And not even a day went by before that went out the window. And yes, a lot of the trucks did travel in convoys. Uh, They did not adhere to any sort of a 20 mile an hour speed limit. In fact, uh, we will learn that they were needing to to average 40 miles an hour uh, over the course of their hundreds of miles of driving in order to keep up the pace that the Army wanted for material moving. So it was not uncommon for these drivers to pull the governors off the trucks and to exceed 55, sometimes even 60 plus miles an hour with loaded deuce and a half trucks, which are the primary uh, mover of this operation. Again, we're going to talk about the specific rigs that are used. So In order to get this thing off the ground and do it very quickly, they needed a lot of people. Where did they find the people? Well, first they went for volunteers, and as we can hear from this particular soldier's recollection, volunteering for stuff in the Army wasn't something a lot of people were keen to do.
2: After we had been bivouacked in the hedgerows of Normandy, trying to buy calvados from any passing Frenchman, sleeping and standing guard in the rain for two or three weeks, the call came down for truck drivers. Most of the drivers attached to the unit were required to volunteer, but for the rest of us, it was anyone who thought he could drive. Most of the men knew enough not to volunteer for anything at all, but this seemed like a great chance to see the countryside and get the hell away from the unit, and especially the first sergeant.
0: I love that interlude there of the soldier, you know, a recollection, and that is a, a script, if you will, or uh, some writing taken from a period letter that was written by a, a GI that was there in France. So the call went out for volunteers, and these volunteers did not come from the front line because those guys were literally fighting for their lives. They could not spare frontline soldiers to drive these trucks. They went to. Every single, well, I guess what we would call non-essential, even though it's a horrible thing to say about people that are serving the military, it's, it's probably the wrong term to use. They, they went to everybody that had a non-frontline role. People that were cooks, people that were material handlers, material handlers, I mean, you name it, they found all these guys to drive the trucks. 75% of them were black. Why is that? Why was the Red Wall Express made up of 75% black soldiers? The reason is because in 1944, the United States Army was still segregated. There was institutional segregation in the United States military at that time. And what that primarily meant for black soldiers is that they did not get put, for the most part, in combat positions. There were specific units, if you will, that, that, that were different than that. The 761st first, first tran- Tank Destroyers, okay, it was an all-black outfit. They were frontline fighters. But for the most part... Black soldiers were in supporting roles, and it was when they looked around and went for volunteers, they volunteered by the tens of thousands to be more active in this effort. They wanted to participate much as every patriotic soldier wants to participate to the best of their abilities, and they thought this was a great opportunity, not just to see the countryside, as we heard that quote there, but this was an opportunity to have a direct effect on the war, to to actively get out there and do something beyond working in the shadows, so to speak. So it is kind of funny how um, you know all of a sudden when when you need the help, the institutional racism thing just kind of goes away, and everybody's able to everybody's able to crank down. And post World War II, the U.S. military made a pretty big deal of this. They they made some par- propaganda films, some some um, some material. One of which was called Teamwork, and the Teamwork film kind of starts out with this uh, fake German general talking about how it's. Um, you know, it's a mongrel nation, in the United States, and the, the Germans are superior because of their, you know, uh, incredibly twisted, bizarre views. And this was never going to work because, you know, the, the white soldiers and the black soldiers would never get along. And the theme of the teamwork video or film was to obviously come forward and say, hey, listen, we all fought together in World War II, uh, you know, it's, it, again, to foster that sense of, uh, of unity, if you will. So I feel like it's important to recognize this fact. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it is an interesting thing. It's not like it was 20% one or the other. It was 75% black drivers, black soldiers that were involved in this, speaking to the fact that they came and volunteered in droves to be part of this program. And I mentioned Teamwork, that 1947 War Department film. Well, here is a clip from Teamwork that explains exactly what I'm talking about.
3: The first was smashing across Normandy. Ten, fifteen towns a day. Patton made a wide-end run and slashed to within 25 miles of Paris. They were out running their supplies. There was talk about running short of artillery ammunition and food and gasoline. One thing saved the day, a steering wheel and a pair of hands. 9,000 steering wheels and 9,000 pairs of hands. The Red Ball Highway. A trucking job that carried the goods from the docks of Cherbourg to the armies at the front. The schedule? 24 hours a day. The drivers? A bunch of American soldiers. Men who drove from sunup through blackout. Men who were bombed, strafed, and sometimes killed by mines. The Germans said these men were only good for pushing wheelbarrows or toting boxes. Well, if this is toting boxes, nice toting, soldier. These are the men who couldn't work together, who'd never get along. They didn't agree with you, Dr. Goebbels. General Eisenhower didn't agree with you either. Speaking for him is Major General E.S. Hughes, who expresses the appreciation and commendation of the Supreme Allied Commander. The success of our recent military operations, he says, depended on the Red Ball Highway for the delivery of vital supplies. When those supplies were most desperately needed, the Red Bull drivers delivered the goods. Congratulations for a tough job. Well done.
0: This episode of the Dorkomotive podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core, 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com, and remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit
4: GearVendors.com to learn more. With limited time and options, planners turned to motor transportation. Lieutenant Colonel Lauren Ayers, Chief of the Motor Transportation Service, Headquarters Com Z, established what would become known as the Red Ball Express. The vehicles for the operation were from the Motor Transport Brigade. The Motor Transport Service was organized with approximately 14 vehicles per platoon and a company was comprised of 40 vehicles. Red Ball was task organized with 108 companies from the Normandy Base Section and the Advanced Section. Operations commenced on 25 August 1944.
0: So now that we know the hows and the whys and a little bit of organization knowledge there from a film called France 44 Red Ball Express by the Army University Press, we can get into the brass tacks of exactly what this thing was and how freaking nuts it was that they pulled it off. So Friday, August 25th, 1944, we just heard the deep-voiced announcer tell us that it was the first day of operations. 3,558 trucks out of 67 truck companies hauled 4,482 tons of material from St. Lo, St. Lo, on a one-way trip to Chartres, which was 125 miles away. This was a 250-mile round trip that took an average of 54 hours. 250 miles, 54 hours. Why did it take that long? Well, when you run 3,500 trucks up the same road, they don't all travel at a very high rate of speed. Some of them crash, some things happen, and then when you get to where you're going, you have to unload all those trucks. So the 54-hour round trip of 250 miles on these closed roads is more an indicative of how long it was taking to hand load and unload these trucks than it was um, you know, the speed of the rigs themselves. Uh, as mentioned, the roads totally closed to all of the traffic but the red ball trucks all traveling in the same direction. It was a closed-loop system. Four days into the Red Ball Express, August 29th, it went from 67 truck companies to its full strength of 132 truck companies, and there were 5,958 trucks all working at the same time, moving 12,000 tons of stuff a day. This includes fuel, this includes ammunition, this includes every fighting element that General Patton and Omar Bradley need. They're taking these materials ahead, they're going to different and various dumps, and then from the dumps they're going to the front line. That won't be the case for long. Occasionally these guys are actually driving right up to the tanks themselves and handing jerry cans of gasoline to the soldiers to gas up their tanks where they sit. It was wild, and it was dangerous, especially in these early days of the operation. There was still some German resistance pockets that they were having to drive through. There were snipers. There was landmines. It was not simply hopping in the truck with another guy. These were two-man teams and just cruising through the countryside and dropping stuff off. Um, They were being shot at. They were being killed. They were crashing trucks. This was was everything that um, you think it was and more. This was not some easy assignment. It turned out to even get worse than that over the course of time. Two-man teams, you were basically told to drive for six hours and then switch. Um, You were allowed to take a a coffee or a a break during your shift of driving. Um, But understand that as this ramped up and as things got even crazier and more um, stretched out towards the front, it was not uncommon for these guys to not sleep, either drive or not sleep, and they would actually switch drivers while going down the road at speed. You can imagine an overloaded deuce and a half army truck barreling down the road with two guys incredibly uncomfortable to start with, and then them switching while going fifty five and if they took the governor off the truck going sixty plus miles an hour down what is not an interstate highway. You know, there were some decent roads here, but a lot of these roads were were winding and bendy roads that went through destroyed towns and cities. We talk about this, trying to maintain this 40-mile-an-hour average speed. The only way you could maintain a 40-mile-an-hour average is take those sections where you had to slow down to 10 to 15 to weave your truck through a blown-up city, and then once you got into the open road, put the hammer down and actually – completely defy the rules that were laid out by your commanding officers in terms of speed. There were as I mentioned stops along the way there were maintenance stops we'll get into the maintenance on the trucks later but there was uh, really what were basically truck stops along the way as well drivers were allowed to take a 10 minute break they would stop at one of these things the Red Cross would be there and they would chug coffee and eat donuts like truck drivers have done for the uh, eternity of truck driving coffee and donuts was a staple of Um, food supply for these drivers. The coffee obviously helped to keep them awake and the donuts helped to keep something in their stomach. Not uncommon for drivers to fall asleep. Not uncommon for overloaded trucks to go flying off the road. Not uncommon for guys to be killed in accidents. It happened. With 5,958 trucks operating on August 29th hauling 12,000 tons of material in a single day, the numbers say something's bound to go wrong. And something often did go wrong in terms of a In a micro sense, the show never stopped with the Red Ball Express on the macro sense. There were crashes, there were fires, there was people killed, the snipers, the landmines, there was all that stuff. But the show didn't stop. The Red Ball Express never slowed down. Once it got going, it was a colossus that almost could not be stopped things that the drivers did as well is they would heat their rations on the manifolds of the trucks they would you know as as people have done over time they would put their their tin can of rations uh, on the manifold of the truck and drive full speed ahead and then uh, when the time came to to either stop or check something out they'd pull it off there and have some have some hot food to eat mentioned two-man teams this was done initially because they wanted a driver and a rifleman. Well, you can imagine after several hours in this truck, the guy who was sitting shotgun quite literally was like, hey, listen, I'm putting this gun down. You know, I, it was more, it became a, a safety and a, almost a morale situation to have tandem drivers in the trucks. It was also necessary to cover the mileage in the distance. As the front kept getting further away, the Red Ball Express route kept getting longer. Those drivers were stretching their ability even more. Having two guys in the truck likely saved a whole lot of lives. It became instantly, um, oh, kind of instantly obvious how important this lifeline was. And gasoline, obviously, was a huge concern. That was a main, um, a main hauling unit, if you will, or a main hauling supply was gasoline. But between August 29th and September 15th. 6,000 trucks moved 135,000 tons of material. 135,000 tons. Not 1,000 pounds. Tons. We know how much a ton is. Is 2,000 pounds. Bust out your pocket calculator and multiply 135,000 by 2,000. I mean, you're likely driving or working, so you don't have to do that. I will do it for you. The answer is 270 million pounds of stuff was moved between August 21st, 29th rather, and September 15th, a span of about two weeks. It's incredible. It just did not stop. General Eisenhower, very early on in the operation of the Red Ball Express, sent a letter of commendation that was read to drivers by their officers. Eisenhower says, and I quote, the Red Ball Express line is the lifeline between combat and supply. To it falls the tremendous task of getting vital supplies from ports and depots to the combat troops when and where such supplies are needed. Materiel without which the armies might fail, they need it all. To you drivers and mechanics and your officers who keep the Red Ball vehicles constantly moving, I wish to express my deep appreciation. You are doing an excellent job. August 1944, signed Dwight D. Eisenhower. That is the type of thing that would absolutely motivate the people involved with the Red Ball Express. And these are regular people. These are regular people. These are not people whose names you will know outside of the generals. The 23,000 people that participated or 25,000 that participated in the Red Ball Express, I would venture to say nearly all of them have passed away. The simple math of time tells us that nearly all of them have passed away. But these were... These were guys who came out of kitchens, who came out of other non frontline areas and got in these trucks and just started doing the work. And they did it so well because they wanted to support the effort. And as this is a Dorkomotive podcast, we need to get into the O Motive part and talk about the actual vehicles that were used primarily in the Red Ball Express. Now, with 6,000 trucks involved, we can understand that there was going to be some variation as to the models you would have seen out there and to what was used. But there were three real primary rigs and the first one was the most populous which is the gmc cckw two and a half ton deuce and a half truck if you're unfamiliar with what one of these looks like simply go to google images and type in world war ii deuce and a half and you're going to see a pretty big looking truck they were made in all different types of variants but these cc would be the cargo carrier version which was basically a giant oversized pickup truck these used a 270 cubic inch inline six GMC engine. It made 91.5 horsepower at 2,750 RPM. 25% of them carried a 50 cal anti-aircraft machine machine gun mounted on a uh, kind of a ring above the cab. So one in four trucks was designed to be uh, armed with a with a pretty heavy weapon there. And there are stories of Germans strafing convoys of these trucks there actually are stories of red ball express drivers successfully taking down german airplanes with that 50 cal uh automatic machine gun that had anti-aircraft rounds in it so um or anti-aircraft style rounds in it so they were armed as best they could be not very heavy armor but that uh, that 50 cal could uh, could could be the business if they needed it to there were two different wheelbase variants of these trucks a so 164 inch and 145 inch Most of the trucks in France were of the 164-inch variety, and that was done because you could put a longer cargo box and carry more stuff with it. Now, before World War II started, the United States had not really done a good job of standardizing their trucks. There was all different styles of trucks being used in different um, branches of the service doing different things, and standardization, as we know, is incredibly important in the world of a mechanized army. When something breaks, you want to be able to pull the parts off anything you can get your hands on, fix it, and continue on down the way. These GMC trucks came in two different variants, and what makes them interesting is the fact that the different variants are only really separated by axles and the transfer cases for the what was then a 6x6 system. All the axles got power. The problem comes in with the fact that, um, well, or I should say not a 6x6, it would be a 10x10, two wheels in the front, then you had eight wheels in the back when you cannot transition the axles of one truck under another or the transfer cases of one truck under another, it does hurt you a little bit on the maintenance side. You have to find trucks with those specific parts. Granted, it's, in theory, every other truck because there are two different variants made, but it still slows things down and potentially causes some problems. That was largely because of the fact that before World War II, these trucks hadn't been used in a super killer battle-style situation, and they found out after they got going that um, they could not produce the initial style of axles and the volume they needed once they started mass producing these trucks they had a cargo capacity of about 10,000 pounds and i say about 10,000 pounds is because as the story goes the majority of these trucks would be grossly overloaded every day on the red ball express stuff stacked way above the cab Depending on what they were hauling, it was just basically falling out the sides, and these guys were just going at breakneck speeds to get it where it needed to go. They used a five-speed manual transmission. Fifth gear was an overdrive gear, and the rear-end axle ratio, the axle ratio is 660. Vacuum over hydraulic style brakes, manual steering, and a 40-gallon fuel capacity with a 300-mile range. The GMC... CCKW was the most singular populous vehicle produced during World War II. 800,000 of these trucks were produced. They can still be found across America. They can be found across Europe. Uh, they were like old tractors. They were built to last. These things were tough as nails. The GM inline six, um, when used properly, really had no problems. Now I say when used properly, when it was driven um, normally, that's, that's when things would last a long time. We're going to find out about the usage of the Red Ball Express, and these trucks were just beat into the ground. When you take that speed governor off the truck, you're effectively allowing the engine to rev up uh, over a range that it would be happy with. Lots of burn valves, lots of blown-up engines, um, lots of seized engines from getting too hot, from running too hard and fast, uh, broken connecting rods. I mean, every way these things could die, they died on the Red Ball Express because of just the wanton abuse that was being laid at them. You also got to remember a lot of the drivers on the Red Ball Express had never driven anything in their lives before getting in these trucks. They would give them a couple days of training and say, okay, go. It didn't matter if you had been driving for your whole life or if you had never actually sat in an actual automobile before. If you were going to be a Red Ball Express driver, you got the same quick training and off you went. Gears got ground, transmissions got beat up, clutches got destroyed, and there was almost as large an army of mechanics as there were an army of drivers to keep these trucks on the road. The deuce and a half made up, as I said, the vast, vast majority of these trucks. But if you go back and look at newsreel footage, you'll find some other trucks, uh, one of which is a a truck called the GMC AFK WX353. This was a cab over version of the Jimmy. And all that did was you take the cab and you you shorten it, and you're allowed to put a longer cargo box on, so it just allows more more cargo hauling. They only made 7,200 of those trucks, and the major complaint was the cab didn't tilt up to service the engine. The cab was on top of the engine. You had to take the center of the cab out to actually service the engine. You had to kind of sit in the driver's seat to wrench on the thing. Mechanics hated them. They only made 7,200 of them. There weren't that many out there. Then there was a, a truck or a, a rig called the Autocar G510, which was a tractor-trailer truck. So the deuce and a half was just, like I said, this kind of overgrown straight truck, whereas the Autocar G510 pulled a trailer just like a normal modern tractor-trailer. The They made 11,000 of these trucks between 1941 and 1945, and they made them as an Autocar G510, a white 444T, and there was also a federal truck version called the ninety-four by forty-three, and there was a uh, another version called the U seven one four four T, which was um, made by another truck company. So, I think Freightliner made those uh, the U seven one four four T. Mechanically all identical, they were made off of government contract, and they were made in pretty good volume. These could be found on the Red Ball Express, on the Red Ball Express towing trailers that had. You know, heavier loads had a lot of ammunition was very heavy. So these trucks would a lot of times be hauling ammunition. They would be hauling big tanker trailers of of gasoline. And these particular trucks had 112 horsepower. Yikes. A 10 speed uh, transmission. And they were classed as like a five ton truck. And they had air brakes. They were four wheel drive made in both open and closed cab designs. And I mentioned the 112 horsepower Hercules engine. They also had another option that made 131 horsepower, a massive uh, a massive increase there of 20 horsepower at 2,200 RPM. Both of those were inline sixes. They had an 843 rear gear ratio, and they had a maximum top speed of about 40 miles an hour. Now, they had 60 gallons of fuel and a 200-mile range. That tells you how efficient they were, uh, basically three miles to the gallon, give or take. Lastly, there were the heaviest trucks that you would see on the Red Ball Express, and these were used to haul stuff like tanks and real uh, artillery pieces and other um, incredibly heavy loads, and this was a Diamond T M20, which is one of the coolest trucks from World War II. If you can go to Google Image and look up a Diamond T M20, you'll see an open cab version that just looks like something out of Mad Max. So this was considered a 12-ton, what they call a prime mover, which means uh, it would and could move absolutely anything. It would haul a 24-wheel M9 trailer that was capable of, you know, again, having a tank on it, stuff like that. It could pull 120,000 pounds. It used two transmissions, had a four-speed transmission with a three-speed auxiliary transmission hooked to the back of it. And the ammunition work that it did was, was important, very important. Deuce and a halfs could really only carry 10 tons worth of stuff. This thing could be loaded at a 24, um, a 24 wheel trailer could be loaded with, uh, you know, almost 10 times, I would guess, the capacity of a deuce and a half. That can move a lot of ammo. Two different engines. You had a Hercules diesel that was 895 cubic inches that made 185 horsepower. Or my favorite, a Hall Scott inline six that displaced 1090 cubic inches. It's a gas engine made 240 horsepower. The gear ratio in the rear axle was 11.6 to 1. You think your 4.11 gears and your hot rod are steep? How about 11.6 to 1? And the top speed of that behemoth was about 30 miles an hour. I mentioned the 12-ton truck and the 5-ton truck just to give you some context there. And, and But the reality is, when we talk about the Red Ball Express, overwhelmingly, we are talking about the venerable Deuce and a Half. So as the Red Ball Express is going along, it is making the type of progress they needed to make. It is supplying the armies that continue to streak across France to continue to beat the Germans back towards the Seine River and to continue to to race them back, if you will, towards the German border. There are some things to, to consider here on the human side of it and certainly some things to consider on the material moving side of it. And for that we're gonna go back to our rolling to the Rhine video and talk a little bit about just how tough these drivers were.
2: We drove the biggest vehicles this side of Hoboken and that side of Moscow. Count them, 14 tires. Count them, 18 tires. This was the greatest road show since Barnum and Bailey. Yeah, you really saw why you needed those trucks on a cross country race like this. Every last one of them. There were plenty of
0: worn down vehicles, burned out tires. And as we need to continue talking about
4: worn out men. Exhaustion and fatigue also took a serious toll on drivers. The grueling round trip to depots near Paris took red ball soldiers over 53 hours to complete. The pace was so demanding that even in teams of two, drivers were known to fall asleep. Accidents were a regular occurrence caused by burnout, speeding, poor road conditions, and collisions with unauthorized traffic. I don't know of anybody who didn't fall asleep. Every so often, you'd see a truck wander out of the convoy and somebody would holler, he's asleep. The men in the convoys would blast their horns to awaken the driver of the drifting truck. I dozed off once. When you fall asleep in a two and a half tonner, you release the pressure on the gas feed and the truck would start to drift back and out of the convoy. I woke up and was down in a ditch heading for one of those cement telephone poles. That's when I heard horns blowing and knew my buddies in the convoy were trying to wake me up. It was hairy at times because you were driving so darn many hours.
0: The work never stopped, and again, that is a quote from a soldier that was taken during the period and uh, put into a modern kind of voice of that France 44 Red Ball Express video by the United States Army that uh, was released several years ago, the Army University Press. I recommend watching that. It It is a great kind of overview look into the Red Ball Express. During the first kind of audio you heard there during this brief section of the show, you heard the guy talking about tires. And it is now time we need to talk about the consumption of the Red Ball Express and ultimately what would end the efficacy of this um, of this operation. And as we talked about at the beginning of the show, the Red Ball Express wasn't the greatest way to do this. It was the only way to do this, to supply these armies during this particular time in history because of the destruction of the railroads and other mass transit by the Allies before the D-Day invasion. And then, of course, the sabotage created by the Germans. Well, they were backing up towards Germany. They were trying to wreck everything in their path as well. The net effect of setting 6,000 trucks on the road at a time um, in an effort that would not stop 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and... um, were being run at a breakneck speed was that you started to use up a lot of parts. You started to use up a lot of pieces, and you started to use up a lot of tires. You heard that first narrator talk about the fact that, oh, this vehicle has 12 tires, and this vehicle has 16 tires. Well, rubber and tires became not only a little problem, but a big problem for the Red Ball Express. From June through August in France, the Army replaced 29,142 tires. Now, I use those dates because this is prior to the Red Ball Express starting. So from D-Day until the beginning of August, the United States Army replaced 29,142 tires over that span of time. From August until November, over the 82-day stretch of the existence of the Red Ball Express, they replaced 55,049 tires. They doubled the amount of tires used because of what the Red Ball Express did and how they did it. It was a necessary thing. It was a necessary evil. But as we know, and this world is so interconnected, everything that we do in France during World War II is going to have an effect somewhere else and on somebody else. And that somewhere else and some other people happen to be the home front in the United States.
5: Here at home, tough, strong men are doing a tough, dirty job. Rolling rubber onto the roads airports, and battlefields of many lands. Many of our country's women have joined them. In three years of war, Americans have built the greatest rubber industry in the world. So great a number of our tires go overseas that we're forced to cut down here at home. You've watched trucks and buses carting vital war supplies in your cities and towns. In one summer month, you watched them use up 135,000 tires you won't anymore. Only 73,000 tires are available for the last three months of the year. The tires you won't see at home are being sent overseas, 140,000 of them for replacements alone in these same three months. Think of the tires needed to equip one infantry division, 1,400 trucks, over 100 mobile artillery pieces, All manner of armored cars, half-tracks, ammunition trailers, ambulances.
0: That clip coming from a War Department film made in 1944 called Highballing to the Rhine, and uh, a subtitled World War II Transportation and Tires, and that was obviously the section of the film that was about rationing and what was going on in the home front in order to keep not just the Red Ball Express going, but aircraft needed tires, everything needed tires. Red Ball Express just happened to exacerbate an already tough problem by chewing up tires left, right, and center. By the end of the Red Ball Express, and we're talking about, again, an 82-day span, it's going to end in November of 1944, they were using 300,000 gallons of gasoline a day just to move the stuff that they needed to move. The Red Ball Express itself was consuming 300,000 gallons of gasoline a day as they were moving gasoline at a higher, you know, rate than that, it still started to take its toll on the, uh, material on the efficiencies of the army. That 300,000 gallons of gasoline they were using on the Red Ball Express, they couldn't stop using all of it. Obviously, these trucks would need to be doing some other things, but it started to become apparent, especially once ports like Chorburg and Antwerp got opened up that, um, yeah, and they started to rebuild the railways, that the lifespan of the Red Ball Express was, was definitely, the end was near. It made a lot more sense to move things by rail, and when you had functioning ports that were now not hundreds and hundreds of miles from the front, but much closer, you shortened up the gap, and the ability to move that product and material became um, a lot narrower. This being said, we need to talk about how a lot of gasoline was moved. And today we think about gasoline in tanker trucks and you move it thousands and thousands of gallons at a time. Well, there were not many tanker trucks in World War II because the amount of steel required to build tanks was, meaning tanks, meaning tank trailers, was um, tough to come by because of rationing and other things during the war. So they were moved in much smaller quantities. In fact, this may blow your mind. Listen to this and how the majority of gasoline was actually moved to the
4: front to Patton's army during World War II. With vehicles in constant need of petroleum at the front, the Red Ball Express began delivering motor transport 80 octane, or MT-80, and aviation 100 octane, or AV-100. When fuel tankers were unavailable, POL products were transported in 55-gallon drums which weighed nearly 100 pounds empty. POL products were often broken down into smaller portions such as the 1-quart, 5-quart, or 5-gallon oil can. The 25-pound grease pail, and the five-gallon can known among soldiers as the jerrycan. Adopted from a German design, one jerrycan weighed 10 pounds empty and 40 pounds full. In 1944, 50 cans could fit in a one-ton trailer, 250 in a five-ton cargo space, and 500 fit in a 10-ton semi-trailer. The United States had 12 million jerrycans before D-Day, But because fuel depots were high-value targets for the Germans, and because jerrycans were often strapped to or carried on combat vehicles, sustainers expected to lose 800,000 per month, starting in August and September. By October, quartermaster units were short 3.5 million jerrycans, forcing the War Department to seek production at home and abroad. Red Ball convoys were under standing orders to depart with full fuel tanks and to transport enough gasoline for an entire round trip. To build fuel stores in forward areas, five additional jerry cans were added to each logistics package and included on all Red Ball vehicles. No other supply class was given similar priority. From June to December 1944, the Motor Transport Services hauled 423,000 tons of POL much of which was stored in five gallon jerry cans.
0: I mean, aren't those numbers staggering? The guys talking about the United States Army had 12 million jerry cans, and then they had a shortage of 3.5 million jerry cans. You heard the reference to POL there, and POL uh, was the terminology at the time standing for petrol oil lubricants. Petrol, oil, and lubricants. So POL products kind of fell into the same grouping, whether we're talking about grease or we're talking about uh, motor oil or gasoline. That's what POL is. So we're kind of in this wind down phase now of the Red Ball Express. Um, the the you know ports being rapidly opened up around France certainly slowing things down a little bit. Consumption of the actual uh, parts and pieces to keep these trucks moving became crazy. On September 10th of 1944, there was a survey done um, by by the officers, or I'm not sure which office, maybe the motor pool. They sent um, Jeeps down with guys in it to record how many trucks were you know, abandoned, stopped, whatever. There were 81 loaded trucks that were abandoned and left on the roadside of the Red Ball Express on September 10th, 1944. Why? For various reasons. The engine blew up. Uh, The tires blew out. Uh, Some guys literally abandoned ship and ran into the woods. I mean, this these are things that happen when you're dealing with human beings. There was also black market sales and pilfering that would go on. Um, You know, French citizens that had been deprived of everything for so many years were desperate for food. They were desperate for fuel. And the G.I.s would make a couple of bucks by having some stuff, you know, fall off the side of the truck. Again, it is all human nature, and when we talk about war, um, it is certainly the most basic thing of human nature where people kind of revert back to the the base things that make us human beings. And in this case, there was some entrepreneurial things going on, uh, certainly highly against the rules, and if you got caught, they'd throw you out. But um, it's not to say that there was not pilfering and there was not some shrinkage, as we would say, in the modern world of trucking, of things uh, kind of falling off the back of the truck and being sold for various different things. Many of the drivers were working 48 hours straight with no sleep. Uh, the accidents were starting to pile up, as was the, uh, the toll, again, on the budget and of the equipment. September and October of 1944 is really when we start to see the diminishing returns um, have an effect here. So we're going from moving 12,000 tons of material a day. By October, it's down to 5,000 tons a day, a little less than 5,100 tons a day, so about half. Uh, Trucks are being reassigned. There's a lot of broken trucks. There are trucks that simply cannot uh, continue on this product. We get to November 5th, we're down to 2,700 tons a day. Only five truck companies left. And by the very end, the last day of operation of the Red Ball Express, 1,644 tons were moved. Still a massive amount, but by this time, uh, we're talking about Antwerp, Ghent, uh, Le Havre, uh, Rowan, Cherbourg, Marseille. All these ports have become open, so the ships and the trains are starting to take the work off the backs of the trucks, being it uh, a more efficient system. There's a great quote from September 1944 issue of Life magazine that detailed uh, what was then kind of the Red Ball Express at its height. And really, this is a, a, something that had captured the entire kind of spirit of the nation, this idea of these, these grizzled truck drivers that were basically driving these materials right down Adolf Hitler's throat and helping to support their, their, their fellow soldiers, their fellow fighters with supplies. The quote is, This miracle was of the American tradition, a tradition the Germans have never really understood. It was begotten of a people accustomed to great spaces, to transcontinental railways, to nationwide trucking chains, to endless roads and millions of automobiles. And that quote is great because it really does sum up the beauty of the Red Ball Express and why it was such a uniquely American solution to this problem. The Red Ball Express, of course, had existed in America in one form or another for decades with our our highway systems, which were totally rudimentary. And horrible at the time in the 1940s were not good, but this idea of trucking terminals and bringing products to a place to have them picked up and moved along in this kind of continuous forward motion was the American tradition. And to think that the German army in 1944 was still using something on the order of 2.8 million horses to move a lot of their stuff. We talk about the German army as being so technologically advanced, which they were in so many ways, but in terms of the basic mechanization, the unsexy side of things, the, the not the panzer tanks, but the actual trucking side of things, the Germans relied on horses far more than they relied on trucks. This turned out to be one of many fatal flaws they had in their entire program, but they had to have been watching in horror to watch the United States Army be completely resupplied and fueled by trucks, something that they knew they couldn't do. On their best day, they didn't have near enough material even to— for something half this size, they couldn't have supported it. So for them, it had to have been enlightening in the in the worst of ways to understand the the colossus that they are up against, the ability to produce these trucks, to get the fuel, and then to have the manpower to 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 get them working twenty four hours a day. December of nineteen forty four um, is an interesting kind of uh, look into a different version of the Red Ball Express. This is during the Battle of the Bulge, so. Red Ball Express proves to be such a great success um, that it is the concept is used in a couple of other areas. There was the White Ball Express and some other, the Green Diamond Express. These are other trucking routes that were developed on the same way and on the same plan that the Red Ball was. Single direction, um, mass trucking routes, but they were much smaller scale. And they don't get nearly the attention. But December of 1944 we have the Battle of the Bulge happening, and this is the last massive German offensive, one that is very serious, one that involves about a million troops, and one that um, did at times certainly threaten the Allies' ability to hold on to to France. If the line broke and the Germans broke through, they were going to recapture the country. As the Battle of the Bulge is beginning, the, we know that the Germans have this initial thrust and they start um, they start to push the Allied lines back. Trucks were then employed to run up and grab everything they could. Uh, they got fuel out of the way. They moved equipment. They moved and they ferried people out. It was almost a truck version of the Dunkirk evacuation where American lines were, you know, imperiled in several places. They did not want the Germans getting fuel. They did not want them getting sca- captives to get, to get prisoners. So the trucks were then employed in a reverse manner to run up to the front line and bring stuff back t- away from the front line as opposed to what they were doing before. Pretty heroic effort. And it was something that, um, again, one of those kind of not lost to history, but certainly something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. The black drivers that made up the 75% of the Red Ball Express workforce. Let's talk about them, because at this point in the war, Red Ball Express is let out, and now 4,500 of these black soldiers volunteer for combat duty. It is beyond heroic 4500 of them signed up to go to the front line and fight around february of 1945 and everything had been wrapped up they began to um uh, not fully but a lot of times you start to see some integration here with uh african-american soldiers and white soldiers in the same units they just simply needed the guys and they needed to get over themselves regarding this really wrong-headed policy of institutional segregation inside the u.s army so to their credit 4500 of the uh, black soldiers that were involved in the Red Ball Express went into the active combat role. The official end of the Red Ball Express comes on November 16, 1944, which follows the closure of Utah Beach as an offloading site on November 13, 1944 and is just ahead of Omaha Beach closing as an offloading site officially on November nineteenth of nineteen forty four. That was where most of these trucks were coming out of and making their runs from. So once those beaches were deemed no longer offloading sites, that was the official end of the Red Ball Express. But what is the legacy of the Red Ball Express? Out like you know, outside of the uh, dummies like me that want to tell you about it in a podcast, what is the actual overreaching legacy of the Red Ball Express? And I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, it's something that you don't think about, but you use, not if not every day, you use it many days of your life, and that is the interstate highway system of the United States. Dwight D. Eisenhower, overseeing the Allied command, watched with rapt attention, of course, the Red Ball Express's success, and he understood why it worked. It worked because it was a system of free-flowing roads that allowed the massive, incredible movement of, Material on wheels, the likes of which the world had never seen before. Quite literally, this was a world's first, world's biggest effort. So, Dwight D. Eisenhower championed the idea of the Interstate Highway System here in the United States, not necessarily as a commerce building project. This, make no mistake about it, the Interstate Highway System was built as a Defense Department uh, initiative in so many ways. This idea of having these roads and the ability to move material on wheels from place to place rapidly was something that the Germans certainly understood with the autobahns. They built the autobahns for defensive purposes. That was where the initial uh, push for those came from. And the United States would go on to build millions and millions of miles of their own version of that autobahn in in the form of the interstate highway system. Dwight D. Eisenhower watched it happen understood why the country needed it, and understood that in the event of some sort of horrific incident where the United States was being uh, squeezed on its shores, that it needed the ability to move a lot of people and a lot of material very rapidly all over the nation on wheels. And that is the true legacy of the Red Ball Express.
2: Red Ball line ends. Improved French Railroads Obviate Truck Service. Paris, November 25th. Associated Press. The United States Army Transportation Corps announced today that the Red Ball highway system that sped ammunition, food, and other supplies from the beachheads to the western fronts for 81 days would be discontinued because of improved rail facilities.
0: And so there you have it. That is the story of the World War II Red Ball Express, a story that has fascinated me for a lot of my life because of the fact that it really was regular people stepping into these roles that didn't get enough credit that didn't get enough recognition, and that did something totally incredible. Without the Red Ball Express, there's no telling what would have happened in France. Ultimately, sure, the Allies would have won the war. Would they have won it with the speed? Would they have liberated France with the speed that they did? Absolutely not. It would have been impossible to keep Patton fueled. It would have been impossible to keep Bradley's men marching on empty stomachs. And it would have been impossible for the United States Army to act as they did so aggressively during that French campaign in Operation Cobra. Hope you've enjoyed this story. Hope it sheds some light on something a lot of people have forgotten about. One of the great stories of World War II, an underdog story, if you will, a regular Joe story about normal people doing extraordinary things. How many of those people left the Red Ball Express and came back to the United States after the war to become truck drivers? We'll never know. But we know that during that time, during the war in France, their time behind the wheel helped to save the world and keep us a free nation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. I'm Brian Loans, and I certainly appreciate you tuning in. We'll be back soon with more, and you can check us out on And You can always support the podcast through the website. Thanks so much.
1: In 81 days of operations, the Red Ball carried half a million tons, 1,000 million pounds of supplies. The trucks themselves devoured 200,000 gallons of fuel. The American drivers and packers and loaders and maintenance men, the U.S. Army Transportation Corps, did a job that had never been done before in the history of war. No blackout at night. Enemy bombers held fewer dangers than did driving in the dark. Dusk and night and dawn, 60 feet intervals, eyes on the road, hour after hour,
0: four hours on duty, four hours off. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is brought to you by Gear Vendors Overdrives. For decades, Gear Vendors has been producing the highest quality, highest horsepower handling overdrives on the market. Easily installed behind a variety of manual and automatic transmissions, a Gear Vendors Overdrive is a transformative piece of driveline technology that takes even the hardest core 3,000 horsepower street machines and turns them into highway cruisers. The drastic increase in drivability and fuel economy are only a couple of the benefits that a Gear Vendors Overdrive unit can offer you and your hot rod. Check them out at GearVendors.com, and remember, GearVendors is the only overdrive that's guaranteed even while racing. Visit GearVendors.com to learn more.